is Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan. Glad you joined us tonight for the radio program. My guest will be Dr. Alan Goldstein, the chair of, of uh, molecular cell biology, Alfred University in New York. We'll also have the music of Dave Simmons right now and for the rest of the evening. Thanks for joining us. Hop on the web, www.mikehagan.com and join us for the conversation and the music for the rest of the evening. Good evening, or good morning to you, good day to you, wherever you might be as you're listening to this radio broadcast. This is Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan. You're listening to it live on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. You're also listening to it live via Cosmic Waves Radio, www.cosmicwavesradio.com. You can listen to this uh, broadcast as we, uh, as we make it happen right now. All right, it's Mike. It's 5-15-2006. I don't mean uh, time-wise. I mean May 15th in the year 2006, Monday night as usual. And uh, excited about the program tonight for you. My guest in about uh, 50 minutes will be Dr. Alan Goldstein. And I'll tell you more about Dr. Goldstein in a few minutes here. But it should be a fascinating program. Uh, It just has a little teaser. We'll be talking about nanotechnology, biotechnology, neurotechnology, this sort of stuff. And uh, Dr. Alan Goldstein has quite a list of credentials behind his name, so stick around. That'll be worthwhile. All right, thanks to Debbie Johnson, wonderful edition of Free Range Radio Theater, as always. Catch Debbie every Monday, an hour before this program, at 10 o'clock, every Monday night, Free Range Radio Theater. All right, thanks to Marco Roden for an amazing show last week. Unbelievable discoveries, it seems, uh, have been made by Marco Roden. The mathematics of what he has done are pretty clear and uh, simple and elegant and beautiful. Yeah, Marco Roden. My opinion of what happened last week, Ashir, what is happening with Marco's work is essentially this. Uh, he seems to be saying to all of us and to all of you, here it is. I've done it. And I've done what I can do with it. Now you do something. Here it is. That's what Marco said last week. At least that's, you know, when I listened back to that interview, that's what he said. And for those of you who missed the show, uh, go back in the archives and download that MP3 or just listen to it on the line, uh, online. And it's amazing. Uh, Marco Roden, and uh, we'll have to see what comes of that, but he's something else for sure. Uh, a mathematical genius, obviously. And uh, whether the implications of his work are ever realized, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. But, but man, the work is absolutely amazing. So, Anyway, okay, tonight, as I said, Dr. Alan Goldstein, another amazing scientist who is literally working on the edge. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Alan in just a few, but if you have the gumption, hop on the web, go over to MikeHagan.com, And when you page down on the front page there, you'll see some information about Dr. Goldstein. And the article that prompted me to get in touch with him, uh, it's amazing. It's 
an article, or a, uh, I don't know if I should call it an article, but regardless, it's a, it's a scientific piece that's called I Nanobot, and it is absolutely a mind bender. And uh, in just a few, we're going to go deeply into the world of nanobiotechnology with one of its leading researchers, Dr. Alan Goldstein. So, uh, as I said, with that in mind, hop on the web, try to catch a leg up, and uh, go take a look at what we'll be talking about in just a little while with Dr. Goldstein, okay? All right, we also have some wonderful music lined up for the show tonight, as you just heard, by um, Dave Simmons. He's a great guitarist, sort of in the, uh, I don't know, maybe Michael Hedges type of uh, vein, but really good stuff, and I'll be featuring songs from his CD, Disengage, uh, throughout the program tonight. So we got more from Dave Simmons. Coming up, we've got Dr. Alan Goldstein, and it's going to be an amazing show tonight, okay? All right, thanks for the emails. I appreciate everything that uh, gets sent to me during the week, and hello to everybody listening over the web. Of course, uh, for the last three weeks, we've been streaming live via Cosmic Waves Radio, thanks to the guys and girls over there. We appreciate it. And uh, so hello to all the new listeners uh, who are listening outside of the general uh, reception area of KOPN, you can now listen to this program anywhere on the planet, as long as you have a reasonably good internet connection. All right? And I couldn't have done that without Carrie and Paul from Cosmic Waves Radio, and uh, with, uh, certainly without Larry, the wonderful web wizard uh, that does all the, all the work at MikeHagan.com. So thanks to all you guys, I really appreciate it. Uh, hello to all the registered users at the site, all the new people that have been registering. We're getting lots of people every day that are coming and getting interested. So I appreciate it. Thanks. Glad to meet you all. And uh, the forum is actually getting some action and getting pretty interesting over there. Lots of people posting stories and commenting on other articles that are being written. And um, one other thing, there is uh, lots of art and music being sent now. And that's exactly what we want. Lots of art and music. The music tonight that I'm playing from Dave Simmons uh, came from exactly this method. I've been, you know, hollering every Monday night for the last year and a half to send us music. Send me music. Send me art. And Dave did exactly that. And you know what? It's a gem. This CD that he's done is completely independent, of course. That's what we feature on the program is independent music. But Dave Simmons did this whole project by himself. He's an outrageously cool guitarist. And... Uh, writing great music, and sharing it, sharing it, sharing it. That's what we're about here, sharing this sort of stuff. So if you are a musician, if you're an artist, if you're a writer, if you're a poet, if you're a dancer, I don't care what you are, send me your art, send it to us. We'll find a way to incorporate it into the program and into the website. All right? And uh, Dave, uh, thanks for the music. I love it. We'll be playing it all night tonight. Music from Dave Simmons and his CD called Disengage. All right, uh, what else? I'm trying to build a mailing list at the, at the website, so if you do go over there, take a few seconds and register. It's free, it's easy, it's private. I'm not asking for a lot of information, just, an, just a valid email address so I know how to get a hold of you. And if you do that, you can get a couple of cool free things. We've got um, my friends William and Jeff from Yachai, amazing uh, group of musicians from, well, they're from uh, the States, but they write their music and perform much of their music in the Peruvian Amazon. They've been inspired by much of the music down there. So anyway, Yachai, you've heard them on the show before. They've made their entire CD, Sweet Mother Mercy, available for free. If you go to the website and, and uh, register, you can download the entire CD, which is awesome. There's 13 songs on it. They all rock. 
and it's a great gesture from those guys to let to to make it available. So I hope people take advantage of that. It's wonderful stuff. Also, Larry's got screensavers and all that sort of stuff. Um, so anyway, lots of stuff at the website. Get over there. Let me know who you are. And uh, thanks to all of you who have already done that. Okay. All right. The email address is always orbitradio at aol dot com. Website www.mikehagan h a g a n dot com. And the phone number here at the station. If you want to call me during a break, five seven three. Eight seven four five six seven six one eight hundred eight nine five five six seven six. If you're outside of that five seven three area code, okay. I don't think we'll be taking any calls tonight uh, with Dr. Goldstein. We'll have to see how things pan out uh, toward the end of the program. But for now, if you want to reach me, either send an email or hop on the web. And you know, it's really cool now that we have this live streaming thing going. Uh, I also have uh, a chat page, a live chat that's up and running right now. So if you go to my website at mikehagan.com, you can uh, click on the little link that says live chat, and uh, you can go there, and you can jump uh, right in the conversation. So there'll be people there that are talking about the program and talking about what's happening on the show. All right? So that's all going on right now, and if you're listening live over the web, good for you. It's cool. I love the fact that we're able to do it. All right? All right, let's see. What else do we have here? Upcoming guests. Oh, I'll tell you what. I think we'll talk about that a little bit after the break. Let's play another song here by Dave Simmons. And we'll come back talk more, okay? This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. And in about 45 minutes, Dr. Alan Goldstein talking about nanobiotechnology and all kinds of creepy and cool stuff.
right, once again, that's Dave Simmons, music from his CD called Disengage. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Check us out on the web, www.kopn.org. Lots of really cool stuff happening, actually, on the website. And one of the things that's happening there is uh, you can now pledge uh, support for the station through the website. And we're actually in the middle of a, uh, a pledge drive, a silent pledge drive. Only three days left, by the way, uh, before we have to really start to get on your back. All right, so we're going to be friendly for another three days, and then uh, then we'll start to scream and holler. Please give us your money. Keep us on the air. All right. Okay. Um, upcoming guests tonight, as I said, Dr. Alan Goldstein. He's the professor of biomaterials at Alfred University. Next week we have Rian Eisler, the wonderful author of The Chalice and the Blade. That's uh, May 22nd. Rianne will join us at the beginning of the program next week. We'll start right at 11 o'clock with her. That's coming up. The following week, I'm not exactly sure on the 29th of May, but we'll probably have Vincent Bridges back on the air. Uh, haven't really confirmed it yet, but we've got the date open. I think Vince is available. So probably Vincent Bridges on the 29th of May. I have Char Davies lined up. She's an amazing artist, a remarkable artist, and she's also a, a, a pioneer in virtual reality. Char Davies does most of her artwork in that realm. It's absolutely outrageous what she's doing, and she's an amazing woman. So Char Davies coming up hopefully in the next three, four weeks. Uh, John Major Jenkins along with Jay Widener. That'll be in the next six weeks or so, probably middle of June. We've got uh, Rick Levine, the author of Quantum Astrology, who'll be on the program, I think, on the 24th of June. Kat Harrison, Dennis McKenna, of course, coming back. Talked to Dennis just yesterday. He's doing well. And anyway, everything's cool, and uh, we're going to keep pushing it toward you here, all right? It's Mike, and um, the website, one more time, www.mikehagen. We'll come back. We'll do space weather. We're going to take one more quick break here. We'll hear another song by our musical feature of the evening. As I said, his name is Dave Simmons. He does great guitar work. Uh, Michael Hedges, mm, I don't know, Wyndham Hillish, that sort of stuff, but very creative stuff and a wonderful musician. So here's one more song from uh, Dave. What's this one? This is the, tr- the eighth track, and I forget what it was called, but I liked it. Ah, yeah, 24-7 Blues. What else? This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We're streaming live on Cosmic Waves Radio every Monday night now, so check us out on the web if you're outside of the KOPN listening area. Otherwise, check us out on KOPN, and uh, as I said, get on the website at KOPN, uh, .org, and you can also uh, help us keep things strong here at the station, all right?
Dave Simmons. That's 24-7 Blues from his CD, Disengage. You can find information about Dave on my website at www.mikehagan.com. And uh, just click on the music uh, the music tab. All right? Okay, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Let's do space weather really quick here. A solar wind stream that's following the opening of a big coronal hole a couple days ago on the sun is probably going to hit the Earth's magnetic field tomorrow or the following day. So if you're in the northern latitudes, Alaska, Canada, up there, this could cause a pretty reasonable uh, geomagnetic storm up there, and you might get some really nice aurora. So if you do, take some pictures, send them to me, and we'll post them up on the website, okay? And uh, you'll always find stuff like that over at spaceweather.com, where I go to see the same types of things, okay? All right, it was just a full moon a couple of days ago over the weekend, and I've uh, decided I want to talk about the moon a little bit during space weather tonight. And the moon this weekend was unique. The full moon, I should say, was unique. And the reason why is because the full moon is always unique. There are no two full moons that are the same. And uh, the way you can prove this to yourself is take some pictures. If you take a picture of the full moon every month and then uh, compare the pictures to one another, you'll find that at times it looks bigger, at times different uh, features of the, of the moon are uh, facing you, and other times different features are. This is a result of the moon's individual motion. The moon itself has a uh, an orbit. It's not a round orbit, a circular orbit. It's an elliptical orbit, like all orbits are that we find in in uh, uh, in space. And each full moon, of course, occurs at a different point in the orbit. And so we see it from a different angle. We see it from a different distance, and it sort of rocks up and down. There's a there, there's an actual uh, uh, a term that they call it. They call it libration. Actually, libration is what they call this rocking motion of the moon as we look at it. But at any rate, pay attention uh, when you look at the moon uh, because uh, every month it's as unique as you are. All right. Okay. <laughs> what else? Comets. You know, it's been all about comets lately. If you didn't hear the special program that Kent Stedman and I did on Friday night, we did a webcast. Um, a two-hour special on Comet Schwarzman-Wachmann P3, which is blazing through the solar system right now, splitting up as we speak, and uh, absolutely blowing the minds of astrophysicists all over the planet. Nobody really knows what's going on, but uh, as Kent put it so beautifully last week, after observing the comet for hours and hours on end, we've come to the conclusion that it is beautiful. So it is. Other than that, we don't know a whole lot. All we know is there are many, many fragments that are breaking up, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, the mainstream astrophysicists who've been saying that this is no big deal are now starting to change their tune a little bit, and uh, even some of them talking about in the month of June that we may see some amazing meteor showers because of what we're going to pass through. Uh, I'm... Uh, as we mentioned on Friday, and if you're interested in this stuff, go back and listen to that broadcast. But I'm certainly not into uh, the doom and gloom aspect of, uh, you know, an idea of a comet hitting the planet or something like that. This particular comet, uh, I don't think there are many pieces big enough anymore that would harm us. I mean, it's literally fragmenting uh, every day, and there are hundreds and thousands now 
of fragments of what used to be one comet. The more interesting thing to me is the debris field, the tail. Uh, we're going to fly right through this mess. In fact, we already are. We're basically in it. And for the next month and a half, we will be in the debris field of Comet P3 schwassmann vachmann And certainly there's the potential of uh, you know, some uh, meteorites and that sort of thing. I don't know if there's anything that we have to worry about you know, as far as catastrophic results, but I just think it's amazing that we're flying through all this stuff. And as we know, well, maybe we don't know, but there's very good evidence to suggest that the material that's in the tails and the debris fields of these objects is not necessarily just a bunch of inert rocks. You know, there's a wonderful and interesting concept in cosmology that's called panspermia. And it basically means that the universe and the galaxy was seeded with life. That life moves from one place to another via cosmic interlopers. Here's an example. The Earth has life on it. At least, well, it has life on it. We know that. I was going to say intelligent life and make a comment about that, but there is intelligent life on Earth, actually. It's just not human, uh, it turns out. So, uh, anyway, picture a comet that actually smashes into the planet Earth. All right? Hits the Earth. Well, what happens when, when, when something like that occurs? The first thing that happens is, it, well, it kills lots of things, but it also throws a whole bunch of material up into the atmosphere. And if it's, a, if it's an impact that's, that's uh, significant enough, it will throw material outside of the orbit of this planet into free space. And that now becomes uh, you know, material that's free to move around, move around the solar system, move around the galaxy. And when you have other bodies like comets and asteroids and meteors that are flying around, they all have gravitational fields, they all have attraction, and uh, it's very reasonable to suggest that these uh, objects can grab onto this material and drag it along with them. Now this is completely uh, not even looking at the idea that there might be biological uh, material on those objects themselves or that they may have picked it up somewhere else. You know, This is just saying that if it uh, happened to be in contact with Earth. But that's a good example. So the, the solar system is uh, filled with planets and objects and all kinds of things. And everything is moving around. And it's easy for things to get picked up and dragged from one place to another. Well, the, uh, the, the uh, concept of panspermia is exactly that. But it's just on a grand scale and, and, and over vast periods of time where uh, a cometary body, for example, might be able to transport biological material from one part of the galaxy to another. And as I've mentioned before, one of the, one of the uh, earthly evidences for this is the mushroom. Because mushroom spores have been shown to be able to withstand great periods of time under very intense conditions, high radiation, low temperature, high temperature. Again, great, great, great uh, expanses of space and time. Uh, for all practical purposes, a mushroom spore is immortal as it flies around in space until 
until it finds a suitable home. And then, well, it does its thing. And uh, it's very possible that that uh, happened on this planet. And if that's an example, certainly there are probably many other examples. So it's not that outrageous. And uh, so we're going to fly right through the tail of this huge, huge mass of cometary debris now, which was once a single comet, and it's now just a, uh, just you know, a buckshot, basically. Um, and for the next couple months, we're going to be able to experience it. So hope for the best. You know, I'm not. As I said earlier, I don't think badly about it. I'm not afraid of uh, you know earthquakes and tidal waves. I'm saying bring on the spores. Comets bring mushrooms. I think that's great. <laughs> All right. What else is happening here? Tuesday, tomorrow, the 16th of May, uh, your telescopes, if you're out in the backyard, will show all four of Jupiter's moons. Well, they're brightest moons, actually. There are many, many moons of Jupiter, but the four brightest will all uh, be able to be seen on the east side of the planet, if you're looking through your telescope. On Wednesday, those same four moons will be sort of separated, two on either side of the planet. Those were also the moons that were discovered by Galileo, by the way. And uh, they sort of shift their arrangement around the planet over the next few days. And you can actually watch it. You can even see some of this with binoculars. It's so bright right now. Um, on the 18th, Mercury will be at superior conjunction. Uh, by the end of the week, uh, Mercury, Mercury will, will probably be visible pretty low in the west-northwest in the evening time. All right? And... Uh, well, let's see. What else? 17th? Well, I mean, look, the only thing in the news, in the space news at least, is this comet. And it's actually really amazing to me that it has gotten such a blackout in the mainstream press. Have you heard anything about this comet? No. Casey, I, my friend Casey is in the studio with me. Anyway, I, I, I don't have a great frame of reference because I don't read the newspapers and I don't watch the television. And the only radio I listen to is our radio station. Um... So I don't know if this comet is getting much press out and about. I kind of doubt it. Casey says certainly not. And uh, I don't know. It's really interesting to me because before, a month ago or so, when this thing started cracking up in the sky and uh, really surprising everybody, all of the astronomers, all of the big-time observatories, everyone was talking about it. And they were saying what a, what a, what an amazing event it was going to be. It was going to be a real bright comet for the first time in a while, and everyone was going to be able to see it in the northern hemisphere. And you know, it was going to be like it was like a like an entertainment thing. They were they were really playing light of it, but saying it was going to be really cool. Well, all of a sudden, the thing started to break up, and now, as we said, we have a comet that is in complete disarray, and nobody really knows what is happening with it. Well, it just went silent, absolutely quiet, and it doesn't surprise me, but. Uh, I just think that, uh, I don't know, I just think it's interesting that they were all up excited about it when it wasn't interesting, and as soon as it gets interesting, everybody decides that they don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't know. I'm sort of the opposite. So, so we will talk about it. And uh, we'll probably do another special, Kent and I, I don't know when, but uh, there's plenty to talk about about this comet, and it's going to be hanging around in our neck of the woods for the next month or so. So Kent Stedman and I will probably do another show 
on P3 Comet Schwarzman Bachman in the next few weeks, all right? Okay, what else do we have before we do another song here? On the 20th, Cassini uh, is flying by Titan again, the moon of Saturn that's so interesting to us. And on the 20th and the 21st, uh, JPL out in Pasadena is having an open house. So for any of the listeners in California, go to the open house on um, May 20th or 21st at JPL and raise hell. And tell them to quit keeping secrets. Okay? Alright, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. We're streaming live on CosmicWavesRadio.com. And we're also listening to the music of Dave Simmons tonight. And this song, I'll tell you about later.
All right, that's uh, Dave Simmons one more time. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. We heard their uh, Cold Molasses Blues and Blue Sky. All right, it's about 10 minutes until midnight, soon to be the 16th of May, 2006. My guest in just a few minutes, Dr. Alan Goldstein, the Chair of Molecular Cell Biology at Alfred University. And uh, hello to my friends in Moberly, by the way, out there. Thanks for uh, supporting the program. You might hop on the web at kopn.org and make a donation to keep the station on the air and keep Radio Orbit and KOPN strong. All right, uh, as I said, Dr. Alan Goldstein in just a few minutes. And let's read a couple. Actually, Alan is, uh, I just talked to him on the phone, and he's in transit. He's been flying uh, this afternoon from the West Coast to the East Coast. Uh, I take that back, from the East to the West. And he's in a cab right now, and he's on his way home. So he's going to call me as soon as he gets there, and uh, we'll pick things up with him uh, in a few minutes. I'm not sure, probably 10 or 15 minutes before he gets to his destination. So in the meantime, we'll talk about a few stories in the news here. We've got plenty of music from uh, uh, Dave Simmons that we can dip into if, we, uh, if I run out of things to say, which isn't likely. But uh, we'll do some news here right now. So, all right, let's see. Tonight, nanobiotechnology. So here's a story that's interesting. The singularity, technology, spirituality, and the closed box. Ray Kurzweil responded to various critiques and questions and stuck to his, por- uh, to his PowerPoint slides of data points that convey his singularity theory. He emphasized that because of the accelerating pace of change, technology will be able to solve all problems, from the practical problems of climate change and energy efficiency to cutting poverty and disease. On the software side, 10 to the 16th calculations per second should be sufficient to reach human-level intelligence and bridging the digital divide. So Ray Kurzweil, somebody who's uh, right in the middle of this whole uh, nanotechnology revolution and someone who I'm sure whose name uh, we might hear tonight when we talk to Dr. Goldstein, but uh, Ray is just uh, continuing to talk very loudly and strongly uh, about his ideas of what's happening with technology. And the bottom line with Ray is that he says that uh, you know everything's golden and that we're just we just have to wait <laughs> a little while longer and uh, the wonderful scientists will just solve everything. I'm not sure I uh, particularly agree with that. Uh, certainly the technologies are expanding at a tremendous rate. How they're implemented, this is the this is the, the kicker, though. How they're implemented. How are they implemented? What do we do with them? And historically, uh, you know, we, haven't, we don't have a great track record. Most of the advances, scientific advances, that have happened in the last 200 years have been used primarily for destruction or for the benefit of a, of a, of a small few. So... I don't know, Ray. I hope uh, I hope you're right, but I think that something else will probably have to accommodate uh, or accompany uh, these advances in, in, in order for in order for them to be used with some with some wisdom, with some intelligence behind them. So, anyway, time will tell. The stuff is coming. It is on our doorstep. This is not 50 years away. This is not 10 years away. I mean, this stuff is happening now. Wait till you hear what Dr. Goldstein is going to tell you tonight. Wait till you hear what Dr. Goldstein has to say. 
I mean, this guy's the real deal, right? Super PhD genius guy, right? And uh, absolutely outrageous what they're doing. And he's not talking about it. He's doing it. Dr. Goldstein's actually doing it. But he basically says, well, I'm going to tell you what we're doing because you deserve to know, even though we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) That's basically what he says. So, anyway, uh, in Tokyo, the new trend is media immersion pods. You should read about this. All these stories, by the way, available on the website at MikeHagan.com. And just a page down on the front page, you'll see all the, all the headlines. And if you click on the News uh, tab over there in the main menu, you can get back to all the archive stories. And we have news stories that go back uh, a long, long way. There's hundreds of them, thousands, I don't know. All right. Let's see, what else here? Theorists explain how a single molecule diode works. Theorists from the University of South Florida, uh, in collaboration with the Russian Academy of Sciences, now that's good, I like to see that, collaboration between South Florida and Russia, kind of like that. Uh, They've explained how a single molecule diode developed by a University of Chicago research team, how it works. The researchers allowed, uh, they showed electron energy levels in a molecule and... uh, exactly how this diode system works. So again, more about this on the web uh, and directly related to the stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight, nanobiotechnology. Uh, Let's see. Here's some people debunking the uh, amazing Bosnian pyramid that's being investigated right now. And uh, this particular story, story says, some see a pyramid to hone Bosnia's image. Others just see a big hill. And uh, the line on this is basically that there are people that are saying that the, that the other people who claim that there's an actual historical artifact there of significance, i.e. a pyramid uh, that's underneath the, uh, the earth there. And there are others that say, well, no, it's just a big hill. Well, I guess the closer you look, the more you see. That's the answer to that story. Let's see. What else do we have here? Here's one. Listen to this. Light's most exotic trick. So fast, it goes backwards. This is a scientist whose name is Robert Boyd. He says, I've had some of the world's experts scratching their heads over this one. Theory predicted that we could send light backwards, but nobody knew if the theory would hold up or even it could be, or even if it could be observed in laboratory conditions. It's weird stuff. So now they're making light go backwards. You know, there were some articles about uh, three, four years ago about uh, slowing down light in the laboratory. You know, for a long time, light is, and, and, and in most, uh, you know, in, in all of our scientific axioms and theories, light is considered a constant. The speed of light is constant, 186,400 miles per second in a vacuum, plus or minus, right? But it's supposed to be constant. Well, over the last few years, we've heard stories from scientists telling us that they've actually slowed light down. They can make it slow, slow down and travel, you know, slower than that, much slower. In some cases, they can even make it stop. Now they can make it go backwards, so now we've got the whole gamut covered there. So light is no longer constant. So throw out all your theories. What else? Magnetic bacteria. I'll read one more story here. I think this is interesting. Uh, 
A 16-year-old high school student, Kartik Majraju, has invented a new way of producing electricity by harnessing the brawny power of bacteria. The idea came to the young woman while browsing through a copy of Nature. John Shepard, bio-research engineering professor, said, I thought the idea was outlandish originally and was one of the most surprised when it worked out the very first time. So now we have 16-year-old students in uh, foreign countries, third-world countries, that are learning how to develop the ability to uh, generate electricity from bacteria. So that's cool. All right, it's just about straight up midnight, so we're going to take a few uh, few minutes here. We'll play some music and uh, come back and talk to Dr. Alan Goldstein. And if Dr. Goldstein is having trouble getting to the phone, we'll find something else to do for a few minutes until we do get him, all right? All right, so it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And check us out on the web at www.mikehagan.com. And you can also listen live if you're not in the KOPN listening area over the internet at www.cosmicwavesradio.com. And we're streaming right now on channel 2 there. All right. All right, it's Mike, and uh, we'll come back in just a few minutes. This is Dave Simmons one more time from his most recent project called Disengage. And uh, this CD is uh, one that I was really pleased to get. I wasn't expecting it, and here it is. KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. This is called Resistant to You. Thank you. 
All right, there you have it, Dave Simmons. More music from his CD, Disengage. This is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's just a few minutes after midnight Central Time, now the 16th of May, 2006. And we're going to get to business here, all right? My guest tonight is Dr. Alan Goldstein. He is a professor of biomaterials. He's the chair of molecular cell biology and also the chair of uh, Biomedical Materials Engineering and Science at Alfred University in New York. He is a gentleman who is at the bleeding edge of an amazing revolution in science, which is uh, being talked about all over right now, but it has to do with a, uh, a word that's called nanotechnology, and he includes uh, another addition to that, which is biotechnology, and we have a synthesis of these things now, nanobiotechnology. At any rate, Dr. Goldstein, as I said, is a, uh, a forerunner in this sort of research, and we're privileged and pleased to have him with us on the air tonight. So we'll let Dr. Goldstein tell us a little bit more about his own work and about his background, but without further delay, Dr. Goldstein, welcome to Radio Orbit. Thanks very much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you, and it's a, a topic that is... Um, generating lots and lots of discussion these days. So uh, I look forward to talking with you about this tonight. I tell you what, Doc, um, uh, first of all, thanks for being on the program. I know you've been traveling all day, and uh, you're from the East Coast to the West Coast, and we just talked in a cab, and uh, I'm sure you probably uh, uh, have uh, a little bit of uh, travel uh, duress, but uh, thanks for sticking around and doing the show tonight. No, hey. You know, it's been, I think it was Tom Wolf that said if it wasn't for being stuck in... Uh, Oh, Harry, never get any work done at all. <laughs> he did some great writing there, I heard. So, yeah, no, no problem. Very happy to be here and looking forward to having a rousing discussion. All right, here we go. So let's do it. Let's, uh, first of all, a little bit of background, a little bit of introduction to you. Um, tell the, uh, the listeners a little bit about yourself, where you come from, and uh, why they should listen to you, and how you got where you are, maybe. Well, yeah. First of all, let's... Let me say right up front that, that when I write about nanobiotechnology, I'm writing as Citizen Goldstein, and that my professional affiliations with Alfred University are not really part of the package. Um, that's point one. Point two is my background is, uh, for a scientist, extremely diverse. When I got my Ph.D., I was studying uh, population genetics, molecular biology, physical chemistry, quantum mechanics, uh, doing transmission electron microscopy. So, you know, 30 years ago I was just confused, but today <laughs> I'm a nanobiotechnologist. Where was your Ph.D., Arizona? Uh, yeah, I'm, I was privileged to get my Ph.D. at the University of Arizona. It's a great school, but it's also one of the most beautiful places in the world. <laughs> I think the hiking had a lot to do with my decision to go there, actually. Huh, interesting. All right, so um, so 30 years ago you get uh, to work at this stuff, and now 30 years later you find yourself in the middle of uh, the unimaginable, it seems like to me. Well, the nano, you know, what's been called the nanotechnology revolution really has a number of components to it. You know, for people who are interested, and presumably that's who's listening, <laughs> I recommend that they take a look at the, the series of articles I've been doing for an online magazine called Salon.com. Right. 
And in there, I try to give a uh, one of the articles as a brief introduction to what nanotechnology is. But the long and the short of it is that nanotechnology is the ability to build machines the size of molecules, molecular machines. Interestingly, that's what evolution's been doing for billions of years. <laughs> so human beings, Homo sapiens, the tool maker, has finally achieved tool-making parity with evolution, the tool-maker. And the confluence of these two things, biotechnology, which is really, you know, biotechnology is where, where human beings manipulate genes and, and other biological molecules, mm-hmm. essentially using tools and systems that we buy off the shelf from evolution. Mm-hmm. We use their en- evolution's enzymes and evolution's... Uh, virus particles and so forth Mm -hmm. and nanotechnology is where we sort of do it ourselves with our own materials Mm. you know engineers being very imaginative when we put those two fields together we decided to call it nanobiotechnology but it's all about building molecule sized machines and this is a whole this is a whole new area there's never been anything like this before and it opens up a realm of possibility that frankly, you know, it's always the end of the world. And one of the, you know, whenever I write one of these articles, uh, you know, a number of, of readers with ennui, with, uh, you know, who are very 21st century, will write in and say, yeah, yeah, right, right. It's always the end of the world. And my answer to them is, yeah, it's always the end of the world. But we've never had one quite like this because all of the other end of the world scenarios had to do with the destruction of life. But nanobiotechnology has to do with the creation of more life. Very interesting. And you know that that we've never we've never faced anything like like this before. I'm I'm confident of that, and uh, so far no one has has made an an argument that makes any sense to me that that tells me anything different. So you know the the final bottom line on nanobio, which I'll just call it nanobio for short is that by building molecular machines that are part biological and part non-biological, we essentially erase the border between living materials and non-living materials. We take the bio out of biochemistry. I called it breaking the carbon barrier. All right. And, you know, as a reason, when we do that, you know, people have this cyborg hang-up. And, you know, I don't say that with any kind of, of malice, but you know, I just, I just say, get over it. You know, it's not really about cyborgs. When nanobio kicks in, it's not that we're going to be hooked up to little tiny machines. What nanobio is about is about erasing the difference between hmm. living and non-living materials, and that's quite different from saying we're just going to have very small machines inside of us. All right, well, that was, uh, we took care of a couple of my first questions there. I wanted to ask you first about size. When we talk about nanoscale, I wanted people to understand what sort of a size we're talking about here. So we're talking about molecular-sized machines. Right, and, you know, in the, in the one article I wrote, which is sort of a nanotechnology primer, I think I say take a human hair, uh, divide it a million times, and measure that diameter. And, of course, people start 
splitting hairs with me and saying, you mean diameter or circumference? <laughs> but anyway, take the human hair, you know, split it a million times, and then take one of those pieces and split it another thousand times, and then you have gotten to the nanoscale. All right, so a nanometer is? Is one times ten to the minus ninth meters, or one one thousandth of one one millionth of a meter. My God. All right. So, so there are people who are working with zepto meters and zepto liters. In fact, there are people who are working on machines that will sequence a single DNA molecule. One, and so they can do your whole genome basically with one set of your genes. And they do that in the volume of a zepto liter, which is one times 10 to the minus 21. My is, God. You know, I think it's a thousandth of a billionth of a billionth of a liter. Remember, I just got off a plane. But it's something like that. It's way small. Right. And the bottom line is you're down to the size of atoms. So in, in nanotechnology, as in biotechnology, uh, you are building molecule-sized devices with atomic precision. Hmm. And that's really what it's all about. Okay. All right, let's, uh, you, you mentioned... Um the carbon barrier already. Let's talk a little bit about the carbon barrier and, first of all, what it is and why is carbon so important? In other words, uh, what, why do we even, why is carbon the barrier, I guess? Well, you, you know, you'd have to ask evolution that question, really, but the point is uh, living organisms are carbon based. Now, I'm is going that, to say, it, do you have a NASA facility anywhere near you, near where you are? You like a NASA kind of town? Well, I mean, Columbia, Missouri, I'm sure there's probably NASA folks here, but they probably don't admit it. <laughs> okay, you know, because NASA, through its, its massive publicity machine, has essentially erased the difference between life and biological life. So, hmm. for example, when NASA goes hunting for life, you usually hear about what? You hear about water, you hear about methane. Hmm. So... You know, their idea is that, that alien life is going to be a lot like us, only much, much different. Uh, whereas the truth is, of course, that many other elements can play in the game of life. And if nanobiotechnology has its way, we're going to help them. Hmm. But, you know, one, one instructive thing to keep in mind is that the first life forms on Earth may not have been organic, may not have been carbon-based. Hmm. Very possibly they were a self-replicating phosphate and that, that theory has been put forward by some very very well-known scientists. What, what, what's the significance of the phosphate? Well, the significance of phosphate or carbon is, the real, the real significance is, can you figure out a way to replicate yourself? Can you grab a little bit of energy? and make a copy of yourself. From the external from, environment. From whatever's around. Right. And, you know, when people talk about the second law of thermodynamics, they say, you know, I, I always ask my students at the beginning of the semester, I give them a quiz, and I ask them fairly straightforward scientific questions, like, okay, what's the second law of thermodynamics? And I get, you know, a lot of unscientific answers or non-scientific answers, which is kind of depressing, like there's no such thing as a free lunch or whatever. And, you know, but the bottom line is that, that chaos or entropy always increases in a spontaneous process. Hmm. If you drop a china plate on the floor, it will break into, you know, a thousand little fragments. If you pick those fragments up and drop them, no one's ever seen them fall back together into a plate again. Mm. Or maybe you have, but you know that. 
So biological life seems to violate that. We take you know, carbon dioxide molecules and water molecules, which were free to float around anywhere. They had lots of entropy. Right. And we fix them together into larger molecules, and we, make, we decrease their entropy. But the sun, of course, the entropy of the sun is, is increasing monstrously, right? So you've got this big entropy generator. Mm-hmm. So bio, you can look at biological life forms or any life form, but in our case, a biological life form, as a little windmill you know, or a little water wheel. We grab a little bit of that energy as it passes by while the sun is, you know, essentially dissipating itself into the universe, and we just were sort of hitchhikers on that. Right. Right. So if I mean, you include the solar system, if you count the whole thing, then entropy is increasing. And so it's all about the ability to self-replicate. Hmm. And so carbon happens to be a very good atom for that. It polymerizes very well. It has to do with its chemical structure, but it is by no means unique. And there are many other types of elements on the periodic table, which, under the right circumstances, right. could replicate. Okay, phosphorus being one of these. Okay, phosphorus is one. What about silicon? I've heard silicon. everyone loves silicon, and okay. I get lots of hoarded jokes. And you know, it would be funny, you know, except that it's for real. Right. I mean, right. I think it's sort of funny too, except silicon. Amazing. All right, let's um. Let me uh, sort of summarize it really fast. But I guess, simply put, um, it seems to me that your position is that, the, that we're about to see some dramatic changes. Basic, all of this due to new technologies and the synergies between them. Um, the nanotechnology, biotechnology, neurotechnology is another one that gets thrown in there, which I guess is essentially the same. Um, but they're all moving tremendously fast uh, with implications and complications and... and uh, end results that we can't really possibly anticipate. Can we? Or, or are, are, no, we, we, are we ready and for it? Is, see, the first thing we have to do, this sort of gets me back to my NASA bashing, which I have a lot of fun with. Me too. Um, you know, is that is that we? the first thing we have to do is admit that we don't know how these things will behave. You know, a true, a true alien life form, by its very definition, is going to be something that we can't a priori understand. But we pretend that we do. If you go out to the University of Google, which is a term that I don't know if that really exists, but if you go out and Google or Yahoo or whatever, you will find like the Journal of Artificial Life or the Journal of Synthetic Biology. And people are just, number one, they're making these things and they're making up definitions for them. But in truth, uh, the first thing that we really have to admit is that we don't know what's going to happen when we build these things. And I've yet to hear anybody admit that. And another way to put it is, for example, if you're talking about safety, nanobiosafety is not just the linear sum of chemical safety plus biological safety. You know, there's going to be synergies that, that we're not prepared for, that we don't understand. And so before we do anything, we should sit back and say, okay, let's think outside the box, recognizing that even as we think outside the box, we're still thinking like homo sapiens. Right, right, right. Maybe these things won't make boxes. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not anti-nano, 
You know, and I'm not anti-nanobio. In fact, I work in the Right, field. you work in the field, sure. And later on, I'll give you some examples of how some of these things might work, you know, if, you, if you'd like me. Absolutely, to. yeah. But I do think that, that we're taking the unknown component, you know, far too lightly, we being those of us who work in the field. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why I write, you know, non non-fiction articles in non-technical journals. Right, so long, that, yeah. that as scientists, we do have an obligation to explain to the public what it is we're doing. I think we have a moral obligation, and also I think the public pays for a lot of this. And uh, I think in general, scientists don't do a very good job explaining to people what it is they do. Hmm. All right, well, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention uh, this series really quickly. If people are interested... In uh, the articles that Dr. Goldstein is talking about, there are a couple of ways to get to them. First of all, you can go to my website at mikehagan.com, and we have uh, the one that caught my eye, uh, Alan, was, um, was, I, was, was entitled iNanobot. And it was uh, uh, maybe a, a month or so ago that that was printed in Salon. But prior to that, there was another one that was about... Um, uh, the medical applications of this. Uh, yeah, I've written a series. The first one was just an introduction, uh, which is called Everything You Wanted to Know About Nanotechnology, but We're Too Afraid of Quantum Spookiness. Yeah. <laughs> and remember, the you know, you have, you have titles were invented by my editor, but, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's kind of a funny title. I love it. And on the, on the side of that is the second article, which was really going to be its own, but we decided to combine them, on the on nano war. <laughs> it's basically a little profile on the MIT Nano Soldier Lab. Right. Talk about nanotech applications in warfare. Then I wrote one on nanomedicine, and then I wrote uh, iNano. iNano. So there's only been a series of four articles and so on. And I think for interested readers, if, well, if they read those four, and they should know a fair amount about uh, what's going on, and at least enough to start formulating questions and pursuing the topic further. Uh, what I would warn you: know, there's unfortunately in the public domain and non-scientific papers, you have to be a little bit careful about what you read because a lot of this stuff is being written by people who are not really technically trained. Mm. They're sort of you know, in my opinion, making it up as they go along, which is which is kind of a dangerous thing to do. All Such as what, like Ray Kurzweil? These guys? Or? No, Ray is. You know, Ray Kurzweil is, is an extremely bright guy, obviously, and a person I have a lot of respect mm-hmm. for. Yeah, I like Ray. But, but what I would say is that that a lot of the real scientists who write in this field are come, and I mentioned this in I Nanobot, that they're coming out of either the field of computer engineering mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. AI or something like that. Whereas I'm coming out of the field of chemistry, mm-hmm. and so I think it's that, that, that difference in perspective that really it changes a lot, because I'm willing to look at life forms as being much simpler than, than a lot of the people who, a lot of the qualified people who write in this field. And that doesn't mean that their vision is necessarily wrong, but I think that the vision that, that I'm putting forward is something we're going to have to deal with much sooner. Hmm. And a lot of the visions that people like Ray Kurzweil are putting forward. So, no, Ray has a lot of interesting things to say, but I'm not sure we're going to make it to his singularity. I think we're going to hit the carbon barrier first. 
Yeah. Yeah. We get the carbon barrier. I don't know if we'll ever make it to his singularity. All right. In my opinion, that's the one that, that we really need to watch out for. The carbon barrier is the singularity that that biology can never recover from. And I don't think people understand that, even people working in the field. Right, again, and this is the, this is the elimination or, or the blurring, certainly, of this line between living and non-living uh, non materials that you right. speak Right, once you've, once you've crossed that line, really, in terms of evolution, I mean, you're talking about three to four billion years of evolution when it's been all about carbon and when it's been all about the Darwinian method of random variation mm -hmm. followed by natural selection, you know, unless you're an X-Files fan or something. Right. And, you know, you want to bring in viruses from outer space. But other than that, for the last three or four billion years, it's been all about carbon and all about evolution. Right. And once you cross the carbon barrier and start enabling and engineering non-biological life forms, and more importantly, hybrid life forms that are part biological, and part non-biological, you have crossed a barrier that I don't think you can go back across again. You know, that's a to me that's a real singularity point. That that really is a defining moment when you cross that line. Well, it sure seems like it, and and uh, it sure struck me when I read I Nanobot. I I mean, it, and and it's a long, uh, wonderfully written, in-depth piece. But I didn't read more than two articles. I mean, I think it was before you even brought up the. Uh, uh, the three laws of nanobiotechnology, which we'll get into um, maybe after the break here. We'll take a break here in a minute, Dr. Goldstein. But uh, uh, but anyway, I was I was absolutely grabbed by it and realized uh, exactly I think what you're talking about here. I thought, uh, and I and I'm you know I'm I'm a tech head. I'm into this. I've I've read Ray Kurzweil for a long time. I was a Terrence McKenna fan, and and uh, you know the the idea of a singularity that Werner Vinge brought up. Years ago, with NASA, uh, frankly, I think it was actually at a NASA conference. I think that the idea of the singularity was actually brought up originally. Um, I've I've been fascinated by it for a long time, but um, the question is now, which singularity comes first? You know? Yeah, it's you know, it's not that it's not that these folks are well. You know, NASA, as I say, the the search for life. I know they look for things other than carbon based. Mm -hmm. A life forms, but they've blurred the line to the point where most people just would never be able to know it. I mean, they've essentially made xenobiology an oxymoron, <laughs> and I think that's too bad. But we can't do anything about it at this point. It's just been embedded. Uh, you know, I can't compete with NASA's publicity machine. Right, we got a language but, issue too. You know. Yeah, you know, but this gets back to the idea of okay, you're working on artificial life. Well, dude, or or ma'am, or you know, whatever. Like, what is what are you calling artificial life? What are you calling synthetic biology? I mean, we're literally just making it up as we go along. And so just for the fun of it, I've designed some, you know, non-biological life forms that are just, you know, 40, 50 atoms. I mean, it doesn't have to be complex to be a life form. The first life forms on Earth were just self-replicating molecules. Right, right. And even today, we, you know, we live in great fear of very simple life forms like Prions and, and viruses, and so it doesn't have to be complex to be powerful. And I think coming from a chemistry background makes it easier for someone to see that than say coming from an AI or, or a computer. computer engineer. Right. All right. I tell you what, that's a good place to take a break. We'll pick up there sure. when we come back. All right. Okay. All right. Great. My guest uh, tonight, Dr. Alan Goldstein. He's uh, among other things the. 
the chair of molecular cell biology at Alfred University in New York. He's an amazing writer and has a great sense of humor, if you haven't uh, figured that out already. And we're going to talk with him for uh, as long as he'll have us. Uh, so we'll be back with him in just a few minutes. And we'll continue with a little bit of music here from Dave Simmons, our featured artist for the night. Wonderful guitar music. This is, uh, again, from his CD called Disengage. And uh, speaking of nanotechnology, this one is called Riot in the Factory. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And as I said, my guest, Dr. Alan Goldstein, back in just a few minutes.
All right, I love it. Dave Simmons from Disengage. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's about 12.30 in the a.m. on the 16th of May, 2006. We're lucky enough to have Dr. Alan Goldstein with us on the line from uh, California. I think that's where you're at. Is that where you're at, Doc? San Francisco. San Francisco, okay. What's the weather like there? of America. We got, we, we, we're in the middle of Missouri here. And uh, normally, May 20th in Missouri or May 15th in Missouri is already 85, 90 degrees. And it's been, uh, I think it was 38 degrees last night, maybe 50 today. It's been totally wacky. So, Yeah, we're almost stuck in Boston. They're having a huge storm there. But uh, thank goodness everything worked out. Yeah, Although I thought it might have been interesting to actually use one of those little telephones they put in the back seats of, uh, <laughs> of the, te- of the airplanes airplane. and, and do the interview from there. And I could have earned miles too because I'm a Verizon <laughs> customer. Hey, those would have been uh, those would have been expensive miles. I have a fan. Hey, so, <laughs> let me let me clear a couple things up. Actually, let, go any let, let me let me mention the website real fast sure. again. Take care of a couple piece of business here, and then we'll then, then we'll do that. Um, uh, a couple of things. Uh, if you want to find out who Dr. Goldstein is and look at uh, his credentials and find out what his research interests are and that sort of thing, you can go to my website and um, just click on his name there. You'll see it right on the front page. And the article that we've been uh, referencing uh, on and off throughout the first half hour there called I Nanobot. That's available on the website as well. Um, uh, Dr. Goldstein, I wanted to ask one thing, but, but before you continue, you. You mentioned this I, because I thought it was profound. Uh, right before the break, you talked about this idea that systems don't have to be complex, basically, to be uh, to be really powerful or or or, or potentially transformative. So I, I was just skimming your article again, and I, and I found this quote from Bertrand Russell, and uh, he, he talked about something that he actually called I love it. He called it chemical imperialism. Yeah, he's the first person I found who really sort of Cut right to the quick there. Yeah, the power of chemistry, right? Yeah, that's, that's really what we're talking about. Well, maybe you could then. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit, and we can talk about this idea that, uh, you know, people have, as you mentioned earlier, people have the idea that it's got to be really sophisticated uh, in order for it to, you know, to be effective. But y- your point is that it's pretty much the opposite of that. Well, I, I don't know if people feel that way or they just haven't put it, you know, they haven't connected the dots. Like lots of people are afraid of mad cow disease, for example. Right, a little bit. But preamble. you know, it's just it's just a protein that is capable of making more copies of itself. It's a one molecule deal. So that's about as simple as it gets. And you know, we're all afraid of Ebola virus, and we're all worried about bioweapons. And you know, these are all very simple, you know, neurotoxins and so forth. Uh, you know, you hate to go to bioweapons as your example, but uh, it's something that people can understand usually. Right, that's the stuff that's in the news. You know, the power of chemistry, some company that whose name I can't remember, you know, I don't want to get it wrong, but they used to say without chemistry, life itself would be impossible. And chemistry, when you really get down to it, is the, you know, the reactions involved you know, are not that complex. So hmm. It's really, you know, this is really what we're talking about. And, nano, and nanobiotechnology is all about hooking up the chemistry of living systems with any other kind of chemistry we can come up with. People often talk about, uh, you know, growing growing neurons over integrated circuits mm-hmm. and getting them mm-hmm. wired up together and so mm-hmm. on. And even that is not that complex of a process. It would be complex 
to build a whole computer out of things like that, but to make one or two would not be very complex. Now, so, you, know, you have to keep in mind that our whole, you know, the the entire human, our whole thing is powered by, you know, a, a, a genetic system that only has four bases in it, just A, T, G, and C. So you can get incredible complexity from very simple building blocks just by mixing them up in different ways. Right, and it's, and it's a chemical engine. Yeah. Yeah. That's all it is. And, you know, people... You know, once again, we're in we're in this time of uh, what they whatever they call it, intelligent design and so mm. forth. But you know, unless you subscribe to those kinds of things, we are really just—I wouldn't say just—we are. Other people go to the other end of the spectrum, say magnificent, mm. uh, but we're either very simple or very magnificent bioelectrochemical fuel cells uh, with a thing called self-awareness, which is presumably an evolutionary adaptation that. That, is, that we've come to over the hundreds of millions of years that we've been on the planet. Yeah, my, my, um, I have a friend uh, in the University of Minnesota. His name's uh, Dr. Dennis McKenna, and he's a, he's a neurochemist. And he, he, he made a comment a couple of weeks ago on the program. He said, well, you know, Mike, essentially we're bags of enzymes. We just happen to be highly organized bags of enzymes, <laughs> you know, and it's essentially true it's just chemistry and so it's just chemistry and i don't say that in a denigrating way right right, um, and, right and i will give you some examples of what i mean by that but let me let me say one one or two things yeah please the first is that, that unfortunately the some of the there are different websites that that go into alfred university and some of them have me as the chair of molecular cell biology but what i really am at this point is professor of biomaterial okay and that's really all i am all right so I don't want to, and, and the other thing, if anyone's tuned in late, is of course that I write as a private citizen, uh, not not associated with the university. Faculty position. Okay. And you know, one of the reasons is I'm afraid at some point I'm going to get my union card pulled for <laughs> saying these things about nanobiotechnology. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who work in this area are very afraid of uh, having like a genetically modified crop type of backlash, like a GMO backlash, mm-hmm. if they. They, if they mention certain things, that could happen, and that may very well happen. And, you know, I'm not afraid to mention those things, and I, I feel just the opposite, that we need to talk about all the possibilities inherent in nanotech and in nanobiotech and not just stick to the groovy stuff. So I do write as a private citizen, and last but not least, well, actually second to last, I'd like to thank the folks at Salon for publishing my articles. No doubt. It's nice of you to say they're well written. Mm-hmm. But not everybody feels that way. And I think it was very brave of them to publish this stuff. My first editor, Andrew Leonard, and my current editor, Gary Camille, thank you very much. And last but not least, is I have the privilege to be married to Kate Braverman, one of America's great fiction writers. And we've been on tour with her book off and on for the last six months. Aha, uh-huh, that answers a couple questions. Huh. Frantic transmissions to and from Los Angeles, and everyone in America should have a copy. <laughs> Congratulations! I didn't realize that. As well. mm-hmm. so that's sort of my my end of the little bit of business, and now I'm back to taking questions. All right. Well, let's. Um, I think that we should talk about the three laws. I think. I, well, because you know, there's there's a, there's something in the uh, in the I Nanobot article. You, uh, I think I, maybe I'll actually read. Um, 
read a section of this because uh, I think that it, I think that's sort of a sort of a profound uh, thing here. You talk about what's the difference between artificial life and synthetic biology, and then you say, "Well, nobody knows, but yeah. we're doing but we're doing it anyway." Yeah, that was you know in, in uh, you know. Uh, I'm trying to learn. I'm not a science journalist. I try to write creative nonfiction, which I think is a little bit different. But my editors, although I love them and I thank them for publishing me, are always saying, you know, you have to show the first law of journalism as opposed to nanotechnology. You know, the first law of journalism is show, don't tell. Huh. So stop all this exposition and, like, you know, show us something cool. And so, you know, writing the laws of nanobotics, I thought, was a good way to reduce, you know, a lot of the exposition down to just a few, you know, sort of a few quick points that people can just say, okay, here it is, you know, A, B, C. And uh, I think I put it out there for people, that, you know, they're not finished. In fact, I'm writing, what I'm doing now is writing an article on each of the laws, trying to expand them out. Uh, but there, there is working hypotheses. You know, one of the things I love, I just love, and I, I think we have a lot of time to talk, which I really appreciate. Yeah, we have plenty of time. So that we can make jokes and have a good time. <laughs> no doubt. And, you know, I don't like to take this stuff too seriously. But, you know, people, I love you it. You better when, not. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it when scientists get up in front of Congress and then Congress, you know, someone, you know, on the Senate panel, whatever, will say, you know, can you absolutely guarantee that, you know, X or Y or Z will never happen? And the scientist, of course, has to say no. And then the next day there's a headline in the paper that says, scientist admits that X could happen. <laughs> you know, and, and so the scientist just thinks he or she is being a good scientist because you can never say for sure, for absolutely 100% certain, that X, Y, or Z won't happen, but, you know, the, the odds against it happening are about one in a gazillion. Right. So people are always getting, you know, scientists are always getting trapped by that. You know, And so theories are just theories. And when I write the laws of nanobotics, obviously, just like when Watson coined the term the central dogma of molecular biology, mm -hmm. you know, I know that these things are going to change, and I know that I don't have it figured out. But you have to start somewhere, and I think that this is a good place to start. And I think that what I've written is correct, and it sort of sums up what we know now. And if we start there, we can move forward and have a coherent dialogue about, you know, do we want to do these things? Now, if you ask me personally, I would say we don't have a choice. Human beings, just if, it, if we can build it, we will build it. But, on, you know, at least, we could have a have an idea of what it is we're thinking about building. And, you know, the first law sort of, to me, you know, is the one that says it all. You know? All right, let's, re let's read that one really quickly, okay? Yeah. And the first of the three laws of nanobiotechnology, or na is, it, is that what we call them? Well, what I did was, you know, I intentionally... Nanobotics, I guess. I wrote it as nanobotics so I could, you know, essentially steal it from Isaac Asimov, mm -hmm. wrote the law of... Now, I don't remember how many laws of robotics he actually had. But I thought if I make it nanobiobotics, I've already made it, you know, too complex. Yeah, nanobotics, okay. So just keep it to nanobotics, and it says the fusion of nanotechnology and biotechnology. 
now called nanobiotechnology, will result in the complete elimination of the barrier between living and non-living material. And that is, in fact, correct. I mean, you know, my when God. You, when, you, when you start building molecule-sized devices, uh, you know, people, people have an almost, you know, and I hope I can say this on the show without, you know, hurting your listeners. You say anything you like. People, you know, have an almost religious belief that no matter how small things get, there's always going to be a switch or a button or, you know, a, a breaker or someplace where biology ends and technology starts. And, right. of course, that gives rise to the cyborg. Right, that whole image, yeah. But when you get to the molecular level, when it's just electrons moving from one atom to another, or atoms moving from one place to another in a molecule, there is no stop sign that says, okay, when you cross this crosswalk, you're in the land of non-living material, and if you stay over on this side of the crosswalk, you're in the land of living material. That, that becomes completely irrelevant once you start working at those levels. Level. Hmm. And since it is the avowed goal of nanobiotechnology to integrate living and non-living materials at the molecular level, you know, this the conclusion that I've written as the first law of nanobiotechnology is really a tautology. It has to be this way. Hmm. There's no getting around it. Let, I want to clarify that. I mean, as, as you mentioned, this, this is not just a uh, a possible out. Well, I mean, obviously it's a possible outcome, but it's actually the goal. It is the goal. If if we don't succeed in integrating living and non-living materials at the molecular level, a lot of people are going to lose their lose their grants. A lot of people working at the university right there in Columbia. I mean, this is what they write in their day, being me, being us, being scientists. This is what we say. We're going to hook up. You know, we're going to hook up semiconductors and neurons. We're going to hook up uh, your retina with a diode array. You know, we're going, and and then we're going to keep getting smaller until we can actually put these things inside your cells. And once we've done that, they're part of your cells, and they're not machines anymore. Amazing, absolutely amazing. You know, I, I built a device called NeoSil just for the fun of it, and I was actually going to buy advertising space. What's it called? <laughs> What's it called? It's called NeoSil, N-E-O-S-I-L, with a little, you know, Marcus <laughs> Registrata at the end of it. Right. And what it was going to be was it was just going to be, and it was actually only 48 atoms, and it was a silicate, so it would have been like your Horta, okay. you know, your basic Star Trek life form. So, but it would have been molecular size, and and NeoSil was based on uh, was based on some of the very common blood thinning agents that they already use, <laughs> like like wafer and some of right. these others. Right, right, right. My dad's so, on one of those. I yeah, I mean, I I have this. This actually came out when a friend of mine had some problems with blood clotting, and he's on a regime now that he may be on for the rest of his life, and so. I said, we, you know, what if there was a silica molecule that did what wafering did? So it, it finds clots, it circulates through your body, and it finds clots. But here's the difference. When it finds a clot, it not only breaks up the clot, but first it binds to it. It's, using a highly technical term, it gloms on. 
and it changes shape and becomes catalytic, and it makes more copies of itself, right? So it makes more neocell molecules. But it only does that when it's bound to the surface of a blood clot. (laughs) And that's not really hard to imagine because many enzymes, you know, change shape and only become functional in the presence of the thing they're going to catalyze. Yeah, but you know, at, at, at a fundamental level, that is a, that is a display of an intelligence of sorts. Oh, it, it's, that's chemical imperialism or chemical intelligence, exactly the kind that Bertrand Russell would be talking about. So what you would have then, notice that if it only becomes catalytic when it finds a blood clot, then its rate of growth would be self-limiting. So it is not a green goo kind of material, green goo being the self-replicating nanomachine that would eat the earth. This thing will be, its rate of replication will be limited by the number of blood clots that it finds in your system. Uh, But it will also be beneficial to you. It will do what Wayfarer does. It will, Mm. or Wayfarer, it'll it'll break up your blood clots. So as a result, uh, it will give you a competitive advantage in your population. You know, you'll live longer probably, you'll have more progeny, and inside of you will be this silicon-based, single-molecule, self-replicating entity that, that would have to be called a life form. Dr. Goldstein, you know, we were talking about prions and, and viruses, and that, are those, and this may be a stupid question, but I'll, I'll act like I'm saying it for the listeners and not myself, is a prion considered a life form? Is a virus considered a life form? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I consider it a life form. Right. But, you know, the, the standard argument goes like this. What is the fundamental unit of life on this planet? And the, the standard answer is the fundamental unit of life on this planet is a cell. And vi- because viruses can't replicate without a cell. Without a cell. You know, and likewise, prions can't replicate without a cell. Right, they need a host. But I would say, you know, that that just means the cell is their ecosystem. I mean, every life form is only a life form within its ecosystem. Right, right. I, I so, agree. you know, a prion needs, you know, a cell to replicate in, but that's, I don't think that disqualifies it as a life form. Right, we need a, we need a planet a life form. Right in the ecosystem of the living cell. Hmm. And likewise, many of these non-biological life forms will only be operational inside living systems. Interesting. I don't find that, you know, I mean, that's actually what makes them dangerous. It's not what disqualifies them as a life form. Right, and and, and in fact, that's sort of a, in fact, that's sort of a, one of the stipulations you need for a life form. You have to have a particular environment in which it lives. Um, well, if if you don't, then you sort of have an omniscient life form. Right, right. You haven't run into many of those yet, although some people seem to think that humans on the surface of the Earth are like, you know, the, um, the life form that seems to be able to go anywhere and do anything. Huh, yeah. But, you know, of course that's not really true. Certainly not. And, you know, the bottom line is that, that these things, if they can replicate, you know, then you have to get them... As I think Bertrand Russell would, I think you have to give them credit for successfully achieving chemical, imper- you know, uh, chemical imperialism. They will get to replicate and continue down the path of time along with the rest of us. Right, right. And, again, and you know, up until now, that's been called Darwinian fitness. I mean, the ability to send your DNA, yours or mine or anybody's, into the future 
uh, makes you a winner in the game of evolution. Right. And so once these non-biological chemical organisms or entities are able to replicate in whatever ecosystem we design them to replicate in, then they're in the game. <laughs> and once they're in the game, they have, you know, there's no absolute reason why they have to play by our rules. I mean, one, one way to look at it is, you know, if biological life evolved in, say, a pri- the primordial slime pit or the ooze pit mm-hmm. and was activated by, say, the high levels of ultraviolet radiation striking the surface of the planet or by the heat from volcanic activity or wherever the energy came from. Right. You know, I would I would argue that our technology is like the new slime pool. <laughs> like, you know, our technology is the breeding ground for new types of life. <laughs> Amazing. All right, I tell you what, we're uh, we're five minutes till the top of the hour. I think we'll do uh, we'll do a little break here and uh, take a breather and come back with uh, my guest, Dr. Alan Goldstein. And you know what, Doc, let's, let, let's talk. We'll come back and we'll talk, a little, we'll talk about uh, number two and number three a little bit, I think. Sure. And, then, and then let's talk about, um, you know, real-world applications and potentials. And, I mean, good, bad, and ugly. Let's talk about what this stuff is going to be used yeah. for. All right? Fun part. All right, sounds good. We'll do it, and we'll come back in just a minute. My guest, Dr. Alan Goldstein. I should ask him one more time. Hey, Doc... Uh, uh, do you have another website that you might want to reference other than... Uh, I'm not no, sure I if you're doing anything privately or not. I don't have my own website. What about your wife for her book? Oh, www.katebraverman, B-R-A-V-E-R-M-A-N, katebraverman, one word, dot com. All right, there you have it. Dr. Alan Goldstein and Kate Braverman. You can find out information about Kate and her wonderful work at She's Kate... A terrific website, all right, cool. Kate Braverman. It's so cool. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll we'll put a link up there. Uh, Larry, if you're listening, it's my webmaster. Larry, if you're listening, put a link up for Kate Braverman, B-R-A-V-E-R. I'll follow up with an email for that. Yeah, definitely. We'll do it, and we'll link up for that. Yeah, I'd love to, and I'd like to read a copy of it, to be honest, too. So anyway, katebraverman.com, my guest, Dr. Alan Goldstein, and uh, we're talking about nanobiotechnology. We're talking about uh, synthetic life, artificial Life, uh, life in general, the elimination of the barrier between living and non-living materials. I mean, all kinds of outrageously interesting and uh, strange stuff tonight. So we'll come back and we'll do more of it. In the meantime, let's listen to more Dave Simmons. This is a song that's called Wolves at the Door. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN. We're also streaming live at CosmicWavesRadio.com.
All right, KOPN Columbia, it's 1 a.m., 89.5 FM. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest, Dr. Alan Goldstein, the author of a number of wonderful articles that are published on Salon.com. And if you go to Salon and just uh, put in his name or put in uh, iNanobot, that's the one that uh, that uh, caught my attention. Uh, at any rate, uh, Google or any of your other Internet search engines will probably be uh, easy enough to find uh, information on Dr. Goldstein. So anyway, uh, we're with him tonight. We've got some more time to speak with him, and uh, we'll get right back to it. Dr. Goldstein, thanks for sticking around with us. All right, let's see. We're talking about uh, these these three laws of nanobotics that you've sort of formulated. We talked about the first one, this idea that uh, uh, as soon as, um, well, actually, that the fusion of nanotechnology and biotechnology, as you say, which we call nanobiotechnology, this will result in the elimination of the barrier between living and non-living materials. We've been talking about that. It's, actually, it's, it's outrageous, but it seems like that's the case at the chemical, molecular atomic level, that's exactly what's happening. It, it has to. I mean, that, that is the avowed goal of nanobiotechnology. It's, it's, not, it's not a side effect. That is that's <laughs> what we plan to do. All right, so that's the plan. So number two is, uh, okay, I'll re- number two says, it is not possible to ensure that devices created using the techniques of nanobiotechnology will only transmit molecular information to the target system. What the hell does that mean? Well, you know, one of the things that I really love about, you know, about us is that we are so darn sure that we're in control of our technology. And, you know, once again, I don't want to get anybody mad, but, you know, we kind of got into trouble in Iraq because I think we, uh, if we want to admit that we're in trouble there because uh, we were pretty sure that we had all the technology Mm -hmm. under control and and it was going to work the way we wanted it to. And, you know, the bottom line is if, if you're going to build a molecular-scale device uh, that, you know, first of all, what are they going to, let's, let's stick with things like, like medicine, okay? So they're going to do nanomedicine on you. So they're going to inject you with some kind of molecular-sized robot, okay? All right. And it's not a, but, well, let, let's just let's stick with that line of thinking. So what is this thing going to be made out of? It's it's not going to be like a little spaceship or a little mechanical device. It's going to like be part antibody or antibody and part uh, cold nano shell. And so the bottom line is it's going to have some living material like protein and nucleic acid and some non-living material. Now once it gets into your body, uh, you know. Your body knows what to do with protein and DNA, so so there's a there's a doorway there, right? You know, if if this machine is part protein, then it can interact with your body in ways that your body knows how to deal with. Your body says, "Hey, there's a piece of protein. Maybe I'll change its structure." Maybe I'll hook it to this other piece of protein. But interact with it in general. I'm going to do something with it. Yeah. So there's no. And you know, one of the things that I think is most amazing about a lot of the nanomedicine websites is that they sort of assume that, that these things are just going to be able to like, like float around or fly around or cruise around your body, and your body's not going to do anything about it. It's not going to notice it. 
Now, in my field, the field of biomaterials, that would be called a stealth biomaterial. <laughs> and yet, we haven't really been able to invent one of those yet. We've invented biomaterials that your body uh, doesn't care about. We call those bioinert, right? And, and the body will just sort of leave them alone. Mm-hmm. But it certainly knows they're there. So when we put these things in the body, the body is going to know it's there, and the body is going to interact with it. And if it is at least, if it is at least partially made up of biological materials like protein and DNA, then there's really no way to be sure that your body won't react with it, that, that there are enzymes in your body that can take DNA and modify it. There are enzymes in your body that can take protein and modify it. So how are we going to ensure that your body doesn't mess with this thing? Hmm. We're just we're planning on just having this thing do something to us. But at the same time, we could do something to it, which in turn will, like, essentially, if this was just biology, we would call it a mutation. Right. You know, we just, we might mutate it. And I give a couple of examples in that article, iNanobot, of how once you put these things in there, you know, they could be changed so that something that you planned on having you know, and I'm sure in Missouri, because I know you have a big uh, ag program at your mm-hmm, school, if, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah, there's a lot of genetic stuff going on here. Plant genetic engineering. That they put things like suicide genes in these plants, and they say, well, don't worry about it. You know, these plants are not going to hang around that long. And, you know, generally that's correct. But on the other hand, there is, you know, the outside chance that, you know, there, there can be a mutation. Maybe one of these guys won't, or gals, won't commit suicide. Right. Maybe it's going to stick around, and that's what people worry about. Right. But in nanomedicine, you know, they're not just going to be putting one or two of these things into your body. They're going to be putting billions, billions of things of into your body. Right. They give you an injection, and there's millions or billions in there. And so, you know, if you have billions, then a, once, you, once you're up to billions, then a one-in-a-million event becomes fairly commonplace. It's no big deal. And, in fact, that's how one of the other things I point out in the article is that's how molecular biology got started. Why did people want to work with bacterial phages, with viruses that grew inside bacteria? Right, because they reproduce so quickly. Yeah, because you could get 10 to the 12th of them. You know, you could get a 1,000 billion of them in, you know, an amount of fluid about the size of a thimble. Right, right? and it has to do with generations, too, this sort of thing. generation time is very short. Right. And so as a result, you could pick out mutants just bang, 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 like every hour you'd get another mutant. So, you know, the the possibility for this bidirectional flow, if we modify one of these things and change it so now it's no longer going to, like, do its job and then self-destruct, it's going to stick around. And, you know, if you're being treated through nanomedicine for more than one condition, it, you know, there's a chance it may run into a mutant of a different nanobiobot. Right, now you got the they synergies can, they between can the two. They can boogie up together and do something else. Right, amazing. So, you know, we're, we, we are the ecosystem, and, you know, they're the organisms, right? And they're, and they're evolving. And, you know, I'm not sure that we really, as I said a little bit earlier in the show, uh, that just taking the sum of chemical safety and biological safety and just saying, well, if we do both of those things, we will cover, you know, all the synergy created by nanobiotechnology. Mm. Uh, you know, I think that's a serious mistake. Right. I think that that's, that's a very dangerous assumption to make. 
Amazing. Yeah, i got to agree with you. I mean, it seems like it's a very naive statement compared to what we're talking about. Um, all right, number three. Uh, the carbon barrier will be eliminated when humans create the first synthetic molecular device capable of changing the state of a living system via direct intentional transfer of specific chemical information from one to the other. Yeah, that's that's the toughest one right now. To uh, but fortunately, since I'm writing my next series of articles on the laws as they show up in this article, I won't have to get to that one until a little bit later on. But basically, what I'm talking about there. See, we haven't even invented the terminology yet to deal with these systems. But this is something that I would call a biomolecule to material switch. Uh, you know, and what that means is a molecular system where information can flow in both directions. Okay. And I'll, I'll give you an example of, of one, one classic example where we're almost there. There are some folks who have taken a thing called an ATPase, which is oh, the molecular yeah, yeah. the molecular motor that basically generates the energy. You know, our cells are full of mitochondria, these little subcellular fuel cells, basically. And what they do is they burn sugar and produce electrochemical energy. Mm-hmm. So we're full of these little electrochemical fuel cells. And the heart of these fuel cells are these ATPases, and they actually physically rotate. They're like a little motor, okay? And if you feed them ATP, which most people learn in high school, well, ATP is the chemical fuel of life, okay? So if you feed these guys ATP, they'll actually spin. They'll spin just like a... They have components, and essentially there's a there's a drive shaft in the middle of them made out of protein, and they'll go round and round just like a motor. Now, there there's some people in a lab who have actually hooked a little nickel nanowire onto the end of this ATPase motor. And if you go to their website, and I can send you in the link, and they actually have a video of this that your, your listeners can go to, you can actually watch this biological motor, this ATPase, twirling this little nickel wire around like a propeller, okay? Now, here's the rub, though. This ATPase will spin if you feed it ATP. Right. It doesn't know what's connected to it, right? It could be a nickel wire. It could be, you know, some biological molecule. It's just going to spin. If it gets the fuel, it spins. If it gets the ATP, it spins. Now, when we reach the point where it only spins, if it's connected to nickel mm. as opposed to, say, platinum or silver or silica or whatever, mm-hmm. then it will have you know chemical awareness of what it is hooked up to. Right. And once we achieve that, once the biological side of the system knows and recognizes the non-biological side and says, okay, I'm only going to do my thing if I'm hooked up to this silica, you know, but I won't do my thing if I'm hooked up to nickel or calcium carbonate or whatever. Then you have bidirectional flow of chemical information between the living side and the non-living side at the molecular level. And so once you've built a true bidirectional switching device like that, you've broken the carbon barrier and that's it, game over. How close are we? A couple years. I mean, I sent my students out this year 
to hunt for to hunt in the literature for BPM switches, and you know it, it may already have been built, and and they didn't find anything that that I thought qualified, but they're close. I'm not sure how thoroughly they searched. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I need to bring up is that a lot of this work is being driven by by so-called biodefense, so that we don't even get to know right. a lot of the stuff that's being built. Y'all, I'll put in a little plug for another one of my articles in Slot, which is called Bio Bioterror Hysteria. And I read you know, it. <laughs> it's, it's I think it I think it is the most underreported news story of the last couple of years that the top R and D priority, the top research and development priority across all government agencies in America okay, is biodefense. You know, the, every agency in the federal government that has an R&D component spends, you know, their top priority is biodefense, and and the news media and you just they won't touch the story with a ten foot pole, basically. So you know everything from the Department of Agriculture to NSF to DOE to of course DOD and DARPA and all that. You know, everyone's working on biodefense, and if you look at, for example. Take a look at DARPA's budget sometime, the parts that they publish. Mm-hmm. There's, it's almost all now in a category called nano slash mm-hmm. or called, excuse me, bio slash info slash micro sciences. A category that didn't even exist five or six years ago. Right. Right. So that's, you know, that's how quickly, you know, nano bio is taking over you know, the world of R&D. Amazing. Hey, let me ask you sort of a, a left-turn question here. As I've been reading over the years about this stuff, I see things like silver and gold being used a lot. Why is it that these sort of precious metals are so significant in this work? Well, one of the reasons is that they're, not, they're non-toxic, you know, and, and so the body won't, they don't mount, infl- you, you won't induce an inflammatory response okay. in the right. body. So that, that's one reason. Uh, the other reason is that, that you know there's, we have techniques to manipulate them, but we're working with lots of other things. Right. You know, the, the one, you know, if you go to NIH's nanomedicine website, and this this is in my nanomedicine uh, article on Salon, right? That, that the gold nanoshell uh, technology is, is getting a lot of. I mean, essentially, you know, the government agencies were ordered to. You put up websites and, and talk about what they were doing in nanotechnology by something called the National Nanotechnology Initiative, the NNI. And in that way, they were told by the executive branch of government. And remember, all these agencies, you know, report, you know, in one way or another to the executive branch of the government, right. even though their budgets come from the legislative branch. And they were all told, you know, you, you need to get on board with nanotechnology. So they all have these sites. And if you go to NIH's nanomedicine website, uh, you know, you'll find them talking about things like gold nanoshells. And now this is a classic example of a nanobiobot. They're going to target these gold nanoshells, which are spheres of gold, right, that are subcellular in size. So they're just a couple of nano, they're spheres, mm-hmm. a couple nanometers in diameter. And but what are they attached to? They're attached to some type of biomolecule. Now, cells only take up certain proteins by a certain pathway. So you have to know the magic password, right? 
But in Bertrand Russell's world, the magic password comes from having the right chemical structure. In order to be in the legions of the appropriate chemical imperialist, you have to look the right way. You have to have the right complexion. You have to have the right three-dimensional structure. And so they're going to hook these gold nanoshells onto a specific chemical structure that will get the outside of your cell to recognize it and say, hey, you know, I want to engulf you. I want to take you up and bring you inside of me, right? And then once the nano shell, once this... Sort of sexy. Yeah. <laughs> and once this nano biobot, right, because it's part biomolecule and it's part gold shell, you know, part a little tiny gold marble, right. a little tiny gold ball, like a BB, a nano BB, right? And it's But it's hollow. So, you know, what do you call something that's part gold and part, say, protein? It's not a nanobot, per se. And, in fact, people like Ray Kurzweil might not even think this thing is smart enough to qualify as any kind of bot, right? Right. See, that's the danger when you come out of, like, an AI or computer programming or systems engineering background, is you say, well, it's just a molecule. Right, you're looking for this big-time sophistication. But, you know, in point of fact, this thing has all the chemical information it needs to find its target cell, which is probably a cancer cell, right? Mm -hmm. To be taken up by that cancer cell, and then you zap it with near-infrared light with a laser, and the gold shell heats up to something like 350 degrees and melts down the cancer cell. Presumably also destroying the nanobiobot. If nothing has happened along the way, if nobody's mutated, if there hasn't been any exchange of chemical information along the way. And so that thing is not a nanobot, and it's not a little spaceship. It's a a fairly good-sized molecule, part of which is protein, and part part of which which is metal. Mm -hmm. And I would call that correctly, I believe, a nanobiobot. Yeah, and, you know, the thing that keeps coming back to me is intelligence. I mean, as, as rudimentary as it might be, I mean, these things are exhibiting intelligence. No, this is classic chemical intelligence. And right. the idea is, you know, I mean, because what are we? Right. You know, we are the product of carbon intelligence, right? That's exactly right. I mean, so, unless, you know, unless you want to invoke a higher power, like everything that we do, is the result of the chemistry of carbon and a few other related, you know, and a right. few other, a few other atoms in yeah, chemical yeah, and, compounds. Yeah. And e- even if you do invoke a, how- a higher power, <laughs> sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know how these atoms got here. I mean, I mean you know, I the point who, is, you know, right. I mean, I don't know who deal with why or whatever, but it's the way it is. So. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, if carbon's smart enough to do this stuff, then obviously, you know, chemical intelligence, you know, needs to be recognized and dealt with. Or, you know, nanobiotechnology can't be worked with safely. You know, and what I, right now I just don't see that recognition of the unique types of chemical intelligence that you're going to get when you hook these two different forms of chemical capabilities together. Okay. You know, people are sort of thinking literally, well, we have chemical safety and we have biosafety. So, like, we've got it covered, dude. And, you know, I'm saying, like, dude, I don't think so. (laughs) But, you know, I I hope that I'm wrong. But on the other hand, you know, 
it, it's just I remember. Well, you're, I, you're, I don't. You're right. I, mean, I don't know who made the <laughs> joke, but there was a guy who was, who was making a joke about like some southern senator who was making a speech on nuclear energy. <laughs> I don't know if I can say this on Missouri radio, but you know. And the punchline was, you know, you shouldn't be able to make a speech on it until you could pronounce it. <laughs> you know, and that, you know, so there's people writing about artificial life and there's people writing about synthetic biology, but we don't really know what these things are yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have, and, the, know, the language hasn't even been created to define them. Yeah, and so, you know, what I'm saying is, whoa, dude, you know, like we should, we should get together. And, and the working model for this is the Asilmar conferences they have on recombinant DNA. When the people in the field said, hey, we better stop and think about this for a second and come up with some guidelines, you know, not the, not terminal guidelines, but create a mechanism to deal with these questions as they come up and recognize the potential here, recognize that we don't know, you know, what we don't know Mm -hmm. and, you know, acknowledge that and set up some guidelines and set up a system that can modify these guidelines as we learn more things that we don't know. <laughs> and I just don't see that happening right now. If you go, if you look at the NNI, the National Nanotech Initiative, the mm-hmm. National Nanotechnology Initiative, uh, you know, responsible development is like always the last thing they talk right, about. Right. And you know, one of the one of the most important aspects of responsible development in the eyes of the federal government, is to make sure that we don't lose the nanotech war because they see it as a competition, and to a certain extent, they're correct. This will be the next industrial revolution. And so responsible development, in a lot of ways, to our government is, hey, we can't lose the nanotech race to the Chinese or to the Indians or whoever. <laughs> you know, and, and so it's full speed ahead and gung-ho, and let's get this, uh, you know, they're more interested, really, in counting patents right. than, than in, in looking outside the box for the unique uh, safety challenges mm-hmm. that are going to be coming along. Dr. Goldstein, let, let me ask you a question about that. As a guy who's in it, I mean, as, who's actually working in the field uh, and experiencing this stuff, what is it like? I mean... It seems to me, like I read articles about, you know, the, the Center for Responsible Nanotechnology, and I know there, you know there are committees, you know, in the government that are convening, and everybody's talking about this, that, and how we should manage this and that. But as an actual researcher, I mean, it seems like you can just do what you want. I mean, I mean first of all, the language is one thing that we've talked about a little bit, but, I mean, frankly, you could do whatever you want, and no one would know. Absolutely. Right? Let, let me say a couple things about that. Once again, I'm going to make some people mad, but, you know, that's the way it goes. Uh, organizations like the Center for Responsible Nanotechnology, I think, are very well-intentioned people, and I respect their good intentions. But as far as I can tell, they're, they're like, technically unenabled. You know, and then as a result, the scientific, the scientific, which is a nice way of saying I don't think they really have any idea of, you know, of the science that they're trying to be responsible about. <laughs> and as a, as a result, uh, the scientific community tends to ignore them, and they're not, they're not the only non-government organization or NGO that would fall in this category. So unfortunately, uh, let me reference another one of my great articles in Salon, or mediocre articles in Salon. <laughs> I had a wonderful title for it. It was called Fear of Cloning in San Francisco. 
but it, it got changed. It, it got changed to uh, bio stupid, and I'm not sure why. It was one of the times when I think my other I love my editors, but this one uh, I don't know where that title came from. But basically, I you know bio the biotechnology industry organization had a meeting in San Francisco, and a group of anti-genetic engineering people called Retake the Commons, I think, or Reclaim the Commons, came out to protest against them. And so I decided to do like a gonzo journalism thing and go out and get the story. And so it, it's a fun Somebody's article to read. And you know, I would, once again, I would recommend it sort of as background on, on all this. But the bottom line is, on the Saturday after the bio meeting, Reclaim the Commons decided to hold like a free market in Union Square in San Francisco where people would come and just give things away. Right. So I thought, so I went there and I put up a big sign or a little sign that said, Genetic engineer, free advice on <laughs> biotechnology available here. <laughs> you know, I sat there all afternoon. And, you know, first of all, for like an hour, you're like, no one would even come near me. And then, you know, people started coming by. I'll just give you one example. There was a guy with a petition, and a petition against stem cells. Oh, my God. And he was collecting, first of all, he was being paid by a company to collect these signatures, which really blew my mind. Crazy. But second of all, he didn't know what a stem cell was. Uh, I wonder. I wonder who's fronting that company. Yeah, I mean, and you know, he, he didn't know what DNA was. Amazing. You know, and he didn't know what a molecule was. And so, you know, the first point I'd like to make is that, that the, a lot of the groups said, they're, "What I said about what I said about retake the commons was they were right, but for the wrong reason." Right. You know, I mean, there's a lot of problems with GMOs, but but they were not able to enunciate them correctly. The second point you make is also quite valid. So far as I can determine, there is absolutely no regulations with respect to integrating living and non-living materials at the molecular level. At the molecular level, I can integrate anything I want to, you know, as long as I don't get up to saying, you know, I mean, obviously there's biosafety regulations for when you get to the level of viruses or bacteria, but at the molecular level, I'm completely free to do whatever I want. And, you know, that's an issue that I think needs to be addressed. One of the issues that I think, uh, you know, is clever of you to spot, and, you know, I've been talking about it a lot. So far, I've elicited essentially no response whatsoever. And, uh, you know, that kind of worries me. <laughs> Amazing. So, it, you know, it, it is sort of, yeah, I can, at the molecular level, I believe, I can build almost anything I want to. And, you know, one other, one other thing I would say about it, is that most of the people working in this field you know, are really good people, mm-hmm. and they want to do good. And, you know, it, it, you say, what does it feel like? And my answer is it takes, like, everything you have to try to solve one of these problems, like to build something that will reopen a clogged artery or to build a better pacemaker or to reactivate nerves that aren't working anymore. And so what happens a lot of the time is you get so caught up in solving the problem that you don't have time. It takes 150, 200% of your mental energy, and you don't have time to think about some of these more global issues. Mm, It's not because you're a bad person. It's just because, like, you're using almost, you're using more than, you're just pushing yourself to the absolute limit, and that's that's all you've got. Mm. Amazing. Well, as uh, with all things, you know, two sides, it seems. So, 
All right, look, uh, Dr. Goldstein, it is uh, 1.30 in the a.m. in mid-Missouri time. Uh, that makes it 11.30 your time. You want to stick around for another 20 minutes or so? Um, you know, whenever you get bored, let me know. No, we're not bored. We'd keep you as long as we can have you, so. All right. All right, we'll do it. We'll, we'll take a quick break here. We'll play another piece of, uh, piece of music by my friend Dave Simmons, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about... Um, we haven't quite got to it yet, but I want to talk to you about what's really, I mean, what's state of the art? What are we doing right now? And what, and, and what do people want to do, I guess? Maybe that's a good question. You know, what, what are sort of the goals, uh, assuming that you can do what you, we think we're going to be able to do? Well, what are, what are we going to do with it? Yeah, so. what are we going to do? That's a good question. Let's talk about it. All right, back in just a minute. God, you know, something else just came to my mind, and I think I had this question that comes to my mind. It's almost like a godlike question, you know, uh, Alan? It's like, when you can do anything, what do you do? <laughs> anyway, back in a minute, we'll ask. I've got the answer for that. Come on back. We'll talk about it. All right. We're going to ask Dr. Goldstein just what we do when we can do anything. It's Mike Hagen. You listen to Radio Orbit. We've got a little bit of music here from Dave Simmons, and we'll come back and have some more conversation. Uh, on the web, www.mikehagen.com. You can find information about myself and Dr. Goldstein there. And you can also hear us on the web live, streaming at www.cosmicwavesradio.com.
Once again, that's Dave Simmons from his CD, Disengage. That song is called Time. And we're sort of running out of that with Dr. Alan H. Goldstein. He's been with us for an hour and a half from his home, or uh, current place of uh, residence, I guess, or where he's at right now in uh, California. I, I, I know that you work, Dr. Goldstein, in uh, New York, so do you live out there in California? Yeah, the semester's over. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. Back. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, it's funny. We're in Columbia here, in Columbia, Missouri, and it's a college town, a relatively yeah. small town. But, uh, man, when school's out, the whole the whole uh, scene changes around here. It's real quiet. It's sort of quiet right now, so I should have known. At any rate, okay, it's, uh, let's see, we got 1.34 a.m. in uh, Central Standard Time. It's the 16th of May, 2006. As I said, my guest, Dr. Alan Goldstein. You can find information about Dr. Goldstein from my website at www.mikehagen.com. You can also read uh, all of the articles uh, published on salon.com at my website as well. Amazing stuff. And congratulations, really, Dr. Goldstein, and and, uh, kudos to Salon for doing that stuff. It's big stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I... I um, I'm sort of a, I'm sort of a generalist. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know the detail of a lot of this stuff. But I talk to lots of different people in lots of different areas of endeavor. You know, and I and I share lots of stuff with people. And um, I sent uh, a couple of your articles to a number of people that I'm friends with and that I respect and stuff. And they, uh, all of them said, this is about the best stuff I've read so far. On this particular topic, and and uh, I thought, well, the AM happen to be literary agents. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, they're not. They're scientists like yourself, primarily, uh, but uh, but but recognize themselves some of the things that you're bringing up that haven't been addressed, and I think that was the main thing. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that, and and I was, you know, what happened to me? I'll just tell the story really quickly. Is I came out to San Francisco on sabbatical, and I was mm-hmm. going to do some. Uh, you know, bio nano work, and it was going to be funded by one company, uh, but I was going to work in the lap of another company. And long story short, the lawyers hadn't quite figured out how I was going to do that yet. Mm-hmm. As a result, I had to walk around San Francisco, and I had you know, thinking about what it was that I was planning to do. Mm-hmm. And at some point, my my mind wandered off into something other than the technical aspects. And, I, and it's just just one of those Shazam kind of things, like yeah. There's, there's something else going on here. You're like building new life forms. Well, wait a minute. There's got to be like something else to think about here. And then I just it just went on from there. So as I say, you get so caught up in solving the problem, and it's so interesting, and it's so much fun, which is why most people become scientists. Mm-hmm. That you just don't have time to think about. It. The other part of it, yeah. but you know, what are we going to build? Right. What are we, what right. are we let's, building right now? Yeah, let's We're talk about these things that are unbelievable. All right, so let's talk about a little bit about. Um, uh, let's see, we got twenty minutes. So let's talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. What are we doing on the on? Let's see, let's do bad first. What do you? Well, no, let me with? let me back up a little bit and say, you know, one of the things that people working in this field have not yet fully realized is that almost every one of I mean, many of them have, and many of them have not, is that almost all these things are dual-use technologies, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, what everyone wants is sensors. I mean, you go out and look at NSF or NIH or any of the funding agencies or even DOD, 
It's all about sensors, biosensors. Right, 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 right. And, you know, so what we're talking about is, you know, a new sensorium. So you say, like, what will we do? Well, you know, what? how many new different sensors would you like, Mike? I mean, you know, what do you want to be able to see? What do you want to be able to hear? What do you want to be able to feel? Because, you know, we have learned the language of molecules, you know, and now that we now that we can speak molecule ease, you know, with ease, <laughs> you know, then now we can we can go out there and say, okay, do you want to you want to see infrared? Do you want to be able? So you know, the 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 good use would be say, okay, I can I can have night vision. You know, I can go out at night in the woods and I can see all kind of can watch the wildlife. <laughs> You know, I can go hiking at night. You know, I can go kayaking at night. Whatever I want to do, I can watch like sea lion behavior after dark. And then, of course, there's the other side of it. It's the MIT Nano Soldier Lab or wherever where they're building it, and they're going to use their night vision for something completely different. Right, right, right. And you know, do I want to be able to, uh, you know, sense the presence of chemicals? You know, well, do I want to be able to know? Uh, what perfume you're wearing? Do you want to be able to know if you've used alcohol recently? Do you want to be able to know if you've used DMT or if you smoke marijuana? Do you want to know if you're sexually attracted to me? Do you want to check out your pheromones or whatever? You know, any of these things can be used. You know, they're, they're at least dual-use technologies. So that's why I say there's people hard at work in labs thinking, you know, well, I'm working on Alzheimer's. You know, I'm working on ways to speed up neurotransmission in the brain without thinking, well, you know, maybe that's also something that someone operating a weapons system would really like to have, you know. And then there are people working on clothing, you know, what they call smart materials, so that if someone gets wounded and, you know, the material senses the presence of body fluid, that it changes shape and, like, you know, begins, you know, forms bone tissue or mm-hmm. forms synthetic mm-hmm. bone tissue. Right, repair the wound, whatever, yeah. And you're thinking, well, it would be great, you know, for people in hospitals and so forth, but it's also going to allow someone who's on the battlefield to continue. It's not just about life-saving. It's about someone being able to, like, shrug off a wound and keep on fighting. You know, you know the weird thing, though, is, is, you know, this word synergy is the biggie, right? Because... It, it's almost like the assumption that that warfare and uh, uh, hospitalization or whatever, all of the things that we're used to, it almost seems like the technology that you're talking about, if it does actually come to fruition to a point where it, I mean, who knows, but it just seems like it, it almost obsoletes a lot of, it almost obsoletes everything. Yeah, and not only... When when Clinton, you know, I think that's in it's in my very first, you know, the, the everything you want to know about nanotech. We're in the White House announcement of the National Nanotechnology Initiative. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what they say. Mm-hmm. They say we have to have a national nanotechnology initiative because nanotechnology, which is really the ability to manufacture with precision at the molecular level, is going to be able to change the way virtually everything is made. Right, in other words, if you... My advice to you is just take the word virtually out of there. Right, right. It's going to change the way everything is done. And so as a result, there's really nothing more important, 
you know, that we could be talking about if your interest happens to be technology. Right, and, and well, quite frankly, to me, it, it and you mentioned it in your article, it's Promethean, you know, Doc? Absolutely. I mean, it, f- since, since the chipping of the first stone, you know, this is, we're tool makers. That's what us talking... No, but see, let, let me, let me, let me say something. You know, Nixon used to say, are you old enough to remember Richard Nixon? Sure, sure. And he'd say, well, let me say this about that. Let me tell you. You know, <laughs> tools, you know, we are predated, tools predate Homo sapiens by like two million years. Yeah, we've been making them for three tools million are years. Tools are old. one of the points that I make over and over again. You know, we are co-evolving with our tools. Hmm. It's not that we are the tool maker. I don't hmm. agree with that definition. Wow. You know, wow. is that, you know, tools were here two million years before Homo sapiens. Hmm. You know, tools created us. We didn't create tools. So we are, we are integrated with our tools literally at the molecular level. Fantastic. And so, you know, like I say, the, the sensor technology is just one of the examples I use in the, in the uh, Nano Soldier article, that was that was one where I want to thank my editors because I couldn't come up with a cool title for it or any kind of title for it. At least it says like I think their title is like the really scary Nano Soldier <laughs> of the future, but I couldn't think of anything to say. I was just so flabbergasted by the whole thing. <laughs> but you know, when you have these sensors and they're they are molecular and and if they're bio nanobots, then they're built in. Right. So you'll be able to like if there's if there's neurotoxin in the air, even a couple molecules, like you'll see it in your field of vision. Right. You'll actually like spot the molecule will, in the air. Yeah, you know, a, a flash of light will go off, or you'll hear a sound, or something. And not only you, but the you know, the smart material you're wearing will do something, like maybe you know, put up some type of barrier or plug your nose. Might or neutralize it somehow or something. Yeah, put up a do some type of neutralization. Amazing. And so, you know, but on the other hand, you know, think about what that does for privacy. You know, I mean, for example, then there'll be sensors. And the thing about these sensors is since molecules can't really be contained, like I could stand outside your house with my sensor and like, you know, what kind of, I'll know what kind of cologne you wear or, you know, I'll know what you've been eating or drinking, you know. And so, you know, and then we can start incorporating these sensors in the smart material. So, you know, we'll have this, like, sensor in your underwear and know if you've, like, had sex in the last week. And, you know, it's just, it's, there's just once you... Mine would say this, no. Yeah, I mean, once you start <laughs> this technology, I mean, when you say, you know, like, what do you want to build, what do you want to know? And the answer is you'll be able to know almost anything with, you know, the next step is like, you know, time travel through black holes or something. You know, as far as the physical world goes, as far as the world of our experience, the realm that we occupy, right. nanotechnology is really the ultimate technology. Right. You know, you go any further than that, you get into, you know, like time travel. Well, yeah, magic and spirit and all this stuff. You know, something that I don't know anything about, but as far as this world, you know, if you want to be able to sense things in this world, if you want to be able to build things in this world, to operate in this world, the one that we, our plane of existence, your molecules is really as, as, as proficient as you need to get. You know, because that's the way we've been doing it for all these billions of years. It's amazing. And you, you make this statement uh, clearly about the elimination of the barrier between living and non-living materials and as we've been talking tonight and as you just sort of bring up now it it to me 
it at a, at a you know Arthur C. Clarke said I think at one point he said that a technology sufficiently advanced will appear as magic, and that's what it's like to me. I mean, it's almost like we're blurring the line between I don't know science and magic. You know. Well, one of the one of the real problems in talking to folks about nanotechnology is it's hard to reduce it to a Boolean kind of yes or no. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, take cloning. Like, you can just ask people, like, should you be should I be allowed to clone myself? Yes or no? You know, so you know, and you know, stem cells are the are the same way. Like, or tissue engineering. You know, should I be allowed to grow a new liver? Right. Yes or no? You know, should I be allowed to grow a new person? You know, yes or no? But with nanotechnology, and then even more so with nanobiotechnology, it's very hard to get it down to just like these single sentence or hot button types of things. Right. So that's one of the reasons why, up to this point, it sort of has aided in under the radar in terms of ethics. Hmm. You know, I called up a, a famous ethicist who's over at Berkeley. And, you know, I got him on the phone because I'm on a, a national committee studying nanotechnology, and so I was able to, like, get past his barrier of secretaries and so forth. And, you know, and I started to talk to him a little about nanobiotechnology and sort of the guys with certain, you know, saying I'm calling for the committee. And I was to a certain extent, but I was also... Fishing a little bit. In his opinion. Right. And I sort of gave him this working definition of nanobiotechnology, the molecular integration of living and non-living material. And I was trying to get him to come and testify in front of our committee. Mm-hmm. And I said, what, you know, does this, am I missing the boat here, or does this raise enormous ethical issues that, that we really haven't considered up to this point? He said, no, it, it, I think you're right. <laughs> and I said, well... Who can I get to come and discuss this? Who do you know of anybody who's like thinking about this or writing about this? And he said no. You know, and so even though you know when you finally get people's attention, you discuss it. There's general agreement that it's like incredibly important. It's it's very hard to get people to think about it. It's just I. You know what? I'll I'll be honest, and I've been. Um I've been promoting this program, and I've been talking to my friends and family. You know, you know, it's funny when you do radio is that, you know, you get, I don't do radio for kicks. I talk to the people that I'm really interested in, you know. So, so if I have a month beforehand to, uh, you know, to sort of think about the material that, that somebody is presenting or whatever, I end up talking to it, you know, I'm, I end up talking to other people about it, etc. And I found the same, I, well, I find it often, but with your material, I mean, I use this, you know, the simple nutshell. I'm like, this guy's talking about the elimination of the barrier between living and non-living materials. This is what I say to people. And I'm thinking, if that doesn't get your interest, I'm not sure what will, you know? Yeah, you'd think so. You yeah. know, I'm constantly amazed that, that this is not a major <laughs> issue. And, you know, of course, I've done you know, the best that I can to make it a major issue by writing you know, the things that I write. But I'm still surprised by how low profile it is. <laughs> and so, you know, I'll just continue to, to do what I do with it. And, you know, I appreciate you having me on. And hopefully, you know, if anyone has found this discussion to be stimulating or interesting, especially if they have, like, huge amounts of money and they <laughs> want to get involved, you know, first they should, of course, support your radio program. But after they do that, 
you know, then they should email me and we should continue the dialogue. I agree. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been, like I say, unlike human, unlike reproductive cloning and, you know, the, the biotechnology stuff, if it's about DNA and genes, you know, people seem to be able to get their minds around it. And if it's about global warming, but one of the things I say in the iNanobot article is, you know, nanobiotechnology, a lot of this stuff is going to be online way before the polar ice caps melt. And a lot of this stuff is going to be online way before the rainforests are gone, hmm. you know. And so if you're worried about melting the polar ice cap, and if you're worried about clear-cutting the rainforest, you should be like ultra-worried right. about nanobiotechnology. But hardly anyone even knows what it is. Well, you know, I think I think it's the whole idea of the um, the advancement, the rate of advancement of these technologies. I don't think I don't I don't think that a great number of people recognize that it's a you know an asymptotic thing or, or an exponential thing. And that yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's no you know, there's no equation to describe the rate at which we're moving right now. You know, when when you take it. You know, somewhere in iNanobot, like I do the math, you know, an X number of millions of years from Olduvai Gorge. Right, to the right, wheel, amazing, and then, amazing. You know, like, and then, then 5,500 years from the wheel to DNA, and then 50 years from DNA to, to genetic engineering, and then, you know, I mean, it's just the rate at which our technology is outrunning our psychology has reached the point where, you know, I mean... If it's if it's relativistic, we should like jump directly into some kind of time warp or something at this point. I mean, uh, you know, it's just things are moving so quickly on the technology end, and so slowly in terms of like human recognition of what we're doing mm-hmm. that that we've just completely left all human reference points behind. And if people actually would sit down in cold blood and and say very slowly what it is that they're doing which is what I had to do when I was sort of stranded here, unable to continue with my research. And so, you know, I am actually building a new hybrid life form that is part biological and part non-biological, and then think about what that really means. You know, I think they'd sort of like, it'd be like getting doused in the face with cold water. Yeah, yeah. But usually, you know, you're just, you're just so busy trying to solve the problem that you just don't do it. That's the only thing that I can think of. Hmm. Or, you know, the other thing I've heard from people that I respect a lot, I'm I'm very surprised by it as well, you know, we'll let the people who are going to install it make that decision. You know, it's not my decision whether you get these extra senses. Mm -hmm. I'm just developing the technology. And, you know, when the time comes to actually put the infrared sensor in or or give you, you know, the, the the other forms of vision or the other, uh, the ability to chemically detect these other things, it'll be up to the person who's putting it in. It's their ethical response. Right, right, right. And, you know, I just, you know, that I'm surprised that that argument's still out there, and I certainly don't agree with it. That's amazing. You know, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, science in general is basically interested in one thing, and that is, can it be done? Sure. You know, is it possible? Can we do it? Not not necessarily with regard to appropriateness up front, you know, and uh, and then you just see where it goes, and it's uh, it's really turning out to be an interesting thing, Doctor Goldstein. Well, you know, it's not at this point because 
you know, our world, the Western world, the developed world, not Western anymore because, of course, China and India and many other countries are very well technically developed at this point. You know, you can't, because it's a technology-driven world now, mm-hmm. scientists can no longer be disengaged like that, mm. in my opinion. I mean, it's just, you know, we, you know, just like, you know, when I was a kid, you know, you had to know Shakespeare and you had to know Picasso and you had to know Hemingway. I mean, these days, you know, to be an informed citizen, you have to know Watson and Crick. Mm. You know, and, and you have to know, if you're not technologically literate in this, in, then you don't understand the world you're living in. Yeah, now. yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, it, that's, 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 and I think that's true for a lot of people. Fully. And I think that's a serious problem. Yeah, I, I, I have people that, I run, you know, I run into people uh, and say, "Oh, I hear you. I heard you on the radio, and you were talking to that guy about, you know, quantum mechanics or Bell non-locality or something." And, well, you know, that that's nice, and I don't, I don't know anything about quantum mechanics, but I'm glad somebody does. And I'm thinking, well, inform yourself, you know. I mean, I mean, that, you know, that's not a great attitude to move the ideas of quantum mechanics forward. Is you know that sort of an idea of that? Well, somebody knows about it. So now people get. To be a to be a participatory citizen in 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 a technologically enabled society at this point, you must know mm. certain rudimentary facts. I agree. Or you know you're not really you're not really a citizen. You're not really effectively participating as a citizen, and you don't understand the times in which you're living. Mm. And that's you know that's that's a formula for real disaster if I've ever heard. All right. Well, I think it's a good place to wrap it up. And uh, well, on the other hand, you know, I'm not predicting disaster, and you know, I'm a fairly happy guy. And I would say, just you know, we have not reached the tipping point. You know, there's plenty of time. Plenty of time being, you know, years. You know, not decades. I don't think, but there is time to say, let's talk about this stuff. If people, if we can get the word out, and if people can become involved, and from that standpoint, you're inviting me on the show with, you know. I, I compliment you on that, and I thank you for having me. Ah, no, you're welcome. It's been a, been a fascinating and interesting show, and, and, and hopefully uh, uh, down the road maybe we can do it again. I'm sure that there's going to be plenty more to talk about as we oh, move there forward. Will be. So. All right, well, look, um, Dr. Goldstein, thank you very much. I have a friend in the studio who's been listening all night. You may have heard him coughing and wriggling around. I've heard, I've heard some laughs. All right, well, hey, hey, I'm sorry, Dr. Goldstein. So this is Casey. So, Casey, say hi. I would like to say thank you very much for the conversation and all of the insight, and I look forward to seeing your progression into this field and and the progression of this field in general. Hey. Absolutely. Thanks for laughing at my jokes. That's always <laughs> a good. That's Actually, always you're, encouraging. You're, very, you're a very funny man. Okay, <laughs> you're a very yeah. funny. Hey, man. That, that's a good way to end the show. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it. And he's also a great writer. And uh, for people who are interested in his material, you can certainly find it through my website at www.mikehagen.com. And uh, all the stuff's at Salon, right, uh, Dr. Goldstein? Everything I've written so far. You know, it's not that I haven't queried some of these other magazines, but I guess I just. I just don't have what they want at this point. But I love Salon, and I thank them very much for publishing. I agree. They're doing a great job by putting this stuff out there. So, all right. Well, thank you, uh, as uh, uh, as yeah, we've said. Well, listen, have a great night, and uh, maybe we'll talk again one of these years. We'll do it. Take care. Take care. All right. Bye, Doc. All right. There you have it, everybody. Dr. Alan H. Goldstein. Amazing, amazing stuff. Nanobiotechnology. The world is changing, whether you like it, whether you love it, whether you hate it. It's happening. So uh, 
jump on board or be run over by the nanobiology technology train. Casey is rattling beer bottles over there. I guess it's 2 in the morning. Time to get the hell out of here. It's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. We will finish up with Dave Simmons one more time from Disengage. And I think that's a word that Alan used actually a few minutes ago, so it's fitting that we'll finish off with the, t- with the title track to that CD. Uh, next week, the wonderful Rian Eisler, the author of The Chalice and the Blade. We'll talk to her from her home in California as well. And uh, between now and then, check us out on the web. We've got lots of news going up every day. The forum's active. The chat page is active at uh, www.mikehagan.com. Until then, cheers. One more time, thanks again, Dr. Goldstein, and thanks again to Dave Simmons for providing the wonderful music for tonight's show. Mm-hmm.